0: Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Authentic Dad Podcast. This is David Warren. Today, we have my friend, my neighbor, the very talented Ashley Harrison Smith. Ashley is a novelist, a painter, a former actor. We have a really interesting conversation about his story, of course, and also some really fun New York City war stories, and some insight on how he manages or integrates being a very present father, a very present husband, and also living the creative life and being a stay-at-home dad while writing books. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. I sure did. And we will see you on the other side. All right. Ashley Harrison is here. His novel, Looking Glass Spy, has been shortlisted for the 2021 Crime Writers Association debut dagger award. I saw that online. Very cool. His first novel, The Disconnect won London's 2019 Capital Crime New Voices award His stage play, Peacock, was voted Best New Play by the DFW Theaters Critic Forum in 2005. He's currently wrapping up work on his third novel, a neo-Cold War thriller entitled The Lazarus Heart. In a previous life, he worked as an actor, voice consultant, and assistant professor of theatre, credited as Ashley Smith. Television appearances included um, co-starring roles on Mindhunter, which was on Netflix, Veep. HBO, of course, the daily show with Trevor Noah and a four year run on turn Washington spies. That was on AMC stage credits included principal roles for the Tony award winning theater companies, such as the Shakespeare theater company in Washington, DC, the Utah Shakespeare festival and Cleveland's great lakes theater festival. He holds a BA in theater and English from Dickinson college and an MFA in acting from the university of Delaware lives in DC with his wife and children in my neighborhood, that's how I know him. Ashley, what's up?
1: Hey, buddy. How are you?
0: I thank you very, very much for uh, for doing this. I appreciate it. I find you to be a very interesting person. And um, let's start with some some biographical information, like uh, where, like that previous life that we talked about. We'll get to the wife and kids, but <laughs> how did that happen? Uh, because he was really on Veep, I saw all the clips. It was it, it was very cool. Uh,
1: well, okay, so I grew up on a farm in Wichita, outside Wichita, Kansas, and um my sisters were much older than me. I was the youngest, and so by the time I was eleven, they were already out of the house. Um, they, I kind of lived as an only child from age eleven onward, and uh, I was very introverted. But when I uh, started doing drama in high school, I discovered that for some reason, I was able to be myself on stage in front of a bunch of strangers in a way that I wasn't able to be myself when I was just interacting with my family um, or my friends. And so it was very liberating. It it turned out that even though I was working from a script all the time, it felt like a form of self-expression. And, uh, so that anyway, I ended up, uh, going to, uh, Dickinson college, uh, and, uh, in Pennsylvania and majoring in theater and then went straight from there to a, a master in fine arts program for acting at the university of Delaware and went straight from there to New York city where I thought I would, you know, take Broadway by storm and it didn't work out that way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 uh, I lived there for many years without... I was working as an actor, but never getting paid. Um, Finally, I started to book gigs out of town that were paying Mm. gigs. And after a while, I realized I was working more out of town than in town. And as you can imagine, living in New York City uh, as a starving artist is tough. So um, the first opportunity I got after living there for eight years to go somewhere else, uh, to live and work. Um, in that case it was Dallas, Texas, joining the faculty of Southern Methodist university, uh, in their theater program. I jumped at that chance and continued to act while I was also a professor of theater. Um, and that's where I met my wife in Dallas. Your wife. Yes.
0: Very good. I do find the starving artist New York City stories a little romantic. <laughs> Can you bring, in, and I have some other questions about your childhood. Can you bring me back a little bit? How are you, um, paying your bills? Cause you yeah. said acting wasn't paying anything. Like, no. what was that like?
1: <laughs> I, I worked very, I worked many, 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 uh, day jobs. But the one that I like to uh, tell stories about the most is um, an on-and-off job I had for seven years at a Wall Street hedge fund called D.E. Shaw & Company. And (laughs) I started there as a receptionist temp and ended up joining the uh, recruiting department as an administrative assistant. But the coolest story about D.E. Shaw & Company is that two months before I started work there, a guy named Jeff Bezos quit. Oh. And the story about how, why he quit is that, um, so he was working there. I think he was working as a quantitative analyst on their trading floor. and he. And Did the- you
0: know this man? Did you know this man when you were there?
1: <laughs> no, because <laughs> we, we, we missed each other by two months. Mm-hmm. One of my great regrets in life. Because if he if we had crossed paths there, I would have known mm-hmm. him. It was a very small company. Mm-hmm. Um, so he and this other guy had ideas for business startups, and they both took their ideas to the head of the company, David Shaw. And the one guy had an idea for a free uh, email service that would be paid for by banner advertising. Now this is back in uh, 1995, so the internet's mm-hmm. very new. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> That was the, one guy had the email, free email idea. And the other guy, Jeff Bezos, had an idea for an online bookstore. Right. And David Shaw listened to both pitches and he went with the free email service. And Mm. Jeff Bezos packed up his wife and and all his belongings and they drove to uh, the West Coast and they started Amazon.
0: Because so, uh, who would want to buy books online, right? I we know. have bookstores for that. Right. We don't need that.
1: Exactly. There was no perceived market for it, just like there right. was no perceived market for the Sony Walkman when the guy okay. who invented that brought, pitched that idea. And everybody was like, why would anybody want to walk around with a cassette tape in your pocket?
0: That, um, that must have been a fascinating um, dichotomy of, of hedge fund worker by day and then going to the theaters of uh, the New York theater scene and the acting scene. I mean, that's uh, a different world, huh? Well, they had
1: this, yeah, it was really different. And they, at D.E. Shaw, they liked to employ creative type people because they figured it, it made the office environment interesting and rich. And so Mm -hmm. I was actually, I got a lot of support from my colleagues and my managers. Um, even David Shaw, uh, said he would have come to see me in a play except his wife was giving birth uh, to, mm-hmm. to their first child that night so he had to miss it but it was a very supportive environment um but after seven years of me um popping out of town for three to six months at a time to go do a play somewhere uh they finally said you know this has been nice but we really yeah. need some more permanency and so i um I, we we parted ways amicably
0: going back, you know, you said you grew up with Kansas, Wichita. Yeah. And I always find that idea of like the comedian, the actor, the artist feeling more comfortable on the stage than in uh, their like normal life. In fact, years ago, we went to a comedy show, saw this comedian we really liked. And afterwards they did like a meet and greet. We got to meet him. And I was struck by how sort of shy and awkward He like wouldn't make eye contact. It was like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. this is really common, isn't it?
1: Well, it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's the norm. Mm -hmm. Most of the actors that I worked with over the years were always on, even Mm -hmm. when they were not on stage. So you'd be socializing with them and they would be on all the time. And that just wasn't my style. Mm -hmm. Um, And every once in a while, I'd run into somebody else in the business who was more like me, who I could just kind Mm -hmm. of connect to. On a on a more low key right. real level, um, but yeah, I I also I mean I do think it's um, interesting that uh, that for some reason uh, performance for some people can be liberating for them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, and I've and I've I've met several people like that,
0: and curious about. What it was like for like your parents, your family, were they supportive of you wanting to do this?
1: Yeah, they were very supportive. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they were so supportive that anytime we would be at a big family get-together with our cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff, my parents would always try to get me to perform a monologue for really? my relatives, and I, would, I just couldn't do it. It wasn't the same as being on stage with... When you have when you're on stage and the lights are shining in your eyes, you can't see the audience. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you're alone, you know. Uh, and they, there's this old saying that everybody's a perfect Hamlet in the bathroom, in front of a mirror. Um, and that's yeah. kind of what it feels like when I'm on stage. When I was in front of a camera later in, in in my career doing some television, I did not feel that sense of security and liberation because I could see hundreds of people standing mm-hmm. around all the crew and the producers and the, everybody was just standing there right in my face just behind yeah, the camera yeah, so
0: I, i've never done anything on a set i used to do like open mic night stand-ups and even in those places there's a light and you can't really see anyone and I mm-hmm. always wondered how they do it but in uh in a, like a studio set is is it pretty like normal like you can see everything that's happening yeah
1: because the lighting isn't all focused on the performers mm-hmm. it's 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 atmospheric lighting that lights a whole room naturally, like you would light a room in Mm -hmm. a home. Um, so yeah, you can see everybody usually, or especially if you're doing something on location outdoors, you see everybody very clearly.
0: Uh, yeah. Okay. So you're so, so, all right. So back to, so the the hedge fund is like, Hey man, let's amicably end this. You're traveling three months here, there doing theater. Yeah. What, what's after that?
1: Um, well, I I did a lot more, a lot of jobs. Uh, I did a lot of catering. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, I could never wait tables in a restaurant because I was, I had a terrible memory. Interestingly enough, <laughs> and I could never remember people's orders, and then I would get real nervous and realize I hadn't, you know, I'd either forgotten their order or. I'd done something wrong yeah. in the in in back in the kitchens. I'd come out and blame the. I'd say, "Oh, we have a new uh, a new chef uh, today," right. and I'm so hey, sorry. It's a hard job. Oh, it's I mean, really it really hard. But with catering, you yeah. you say, "Do you want the chicken or the salmon?" And you
0: mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm.
1: decaf or regular, and that's all you have to remember.
0: <laughs> Do you? How was it? Um, like from Wichita to New York City? Did you? Was it like culture shock? Did you love it? Was it? What was it like?
1: Um, I loved it to a certain degree, it was, I was kind of transitioned because I went to college in Pennsylvania, went to grad school in Delaware, and I was in and out of New York city during those years visiting. So I kind of had a gradual introduction to the city, but, but I grew up on a 40 acre farm yeah, and I was used to big open spaces and you don't get a lot of that in New York city. And so every day was a struggle for me because of the crowds. Um, and, and I would, uh, finally I found a, a, uh, a place where I could go in Brooklyn called Prospect mm. Park.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and I would go there every day to run or something and just get, cause there you could see big fields and wooded areas and stuff. I mean, it's like Central Park except not quite yeah, many yeah. people. But
0: were you living in Brooklyn?
1: Yeah, I was in Park Slope for the last mm-hmm. five years of my life there. V-
0: very nice, was it? As a, was it a shishi back then, or <laughs>
1: it was start, starting to become that, but it hadn't mm-hmm. quite gotten to where it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able. My first apartment I got in 1997 mm-hmm. was a tiny little. I it was a studio um, for 700 a month. Now it was infested with cockroaches and there were some other issues, yeah. but you know, I thought, Oh, I can, I can bury location. Great location. Access. Great. Location. <laughs> Great lo- I love that neighborhood.
0: Yeah, no, we're, we're, um, we're going, we're going this weekend. Mm. I, uh, I'm a big fan of that place. So that's why I always like, tell me about New York. What was that like?
1: Do you, have and, you taken your kids there before?
0: Many, many times. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. We, we enjoy, you know, it's always, it's the energy. It's the adventure of just walking around mm-hmm. and seeing what's going on now. People like old school New Yorkers say, ah, it's not what it used to be. It's very like <laughs> yeah. Times Square is like Disney World. Right. It's not nearly as gritty or or fun. But That
1: was just starting to happen the year mm-hmm. that I moved there in 95. 42nd Street was transforming into Disney mm-hmm. World. Giuliani was in office as mayor, and he was yeah. largely responsible for a lot of that change.
0: But I, yeah. I feel great that we're, you know, three and a half, four hours. And it's just, Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, every, I would say that's more of like my happy place. Mm. I'm not the beach guy, but, Mm. um, it's, uh, so I'm always interested in people who, cause you were single and didn't have children and we'll get to your, your family life. And that, you know, I'm probably romanticizing a little bit, but that must be a really impactful time to, to have done them.
1: We, I had some really wonderful, um, experiences serendipitous experiences um can i tell you my
0: favorite (laughs) new york story tell me all the new york stories (laughs) you see woody allen on a bench or something um
1: no i saw a lot of celebrities out out and about but um and i interacted with a lot of celebrities when i was their cater waiter Uh, Mm -hmm. but my favorite story is a friend of mine and I, she, so a woman I was not dating, but I kind of wanted to be dating her, but we were just going out as friends. And we were out to dinner at this awesome Mexican restaurant on, uh, in Hell's Kitchen called Arriba Arriba. And mm-hmm. it's still there. And uh, we're sitting there, and I couldn't help but overhear the conversation taking place at the table next to ours there were two men and a woman sitting together and they mm-hmm. were talking about Brainerd, Minnesota. And mm. I, that pricked up my ear because um, I spent many summers in the Brainerd, Minnesota area. And so <clears throat> I told my friend that I said, that's amazing. They're talking about Brainerd, Minnesota. Can you believe that? And... uh Then I got up to use the bathroom, and when I came back, my friend was now sitting at that table with those other three people, and she said, Ashley, come over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're just talking about Brainerd, Minnesota, and so we got to talking, and um, so one of the guys says, well, I'm from Brainerd, and we used to play this game there called bovine bingo in which you drew a big a bingo grid on a parking lot and then you would walk cows around the parking lot and wherever they pooped that would mm. you'd call out that letter or that number mm. right so that was odd <laughs> and then and then i don't know we were talking about a lot of interesting things and uh, i said something like wow i, I can't believe uh, that you know you're from brainerd or something and he he points to the other guy and says well if you can't believe that you'd never believe who he is Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, who are you? And his name was, this other guy's name was Felipe Rose. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what does he mean? Who are you, Felipe? And he and he kind of looked down and smiled and he goes, well, I'm the Indian from the village people. Really? Yeah. Felipe oh, cool. Rose was the Indian, is the Indian from the village people. And okay. I, I and he was so nice. They were such nice people. And uh, we we spent, we had a picture of sangria with them. And we had a wonderful time. And then... At the end of the evening, Felipe said, "Hey, listen guys, it was great meeting you. Um, we're going to be performing on uh, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno in a couple of weeks, and I just mm-hmm. I want to like say hi to you when we're on the Tonight Show. I want to give you a signal." Um, <laughs> and so uh, so he said, "You know um, the village people have a huge death following. In fact, in every, every Village People concert, there is a section of the audience that's reserved for the deaf uh, audience hmm. members, and they have somebody's sign language interpreting the songs as they're being performed on stage. He said, listen, when, when we're on Leno, I'm going to give you the sign language uh, symbol for cow because mm-hmm. we've been talking about this bovine bingo. And so we're like, oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, whatever. And so... Two weeks later, my friend and I get together to watch Leno's show because we know that the Village people are going to be on that night. And Jay is doing his monologue. And all of a sudden, one of his production assistants comes on stage and says, Jay, I'm sorry I'm sorry to interrupt the, the monologue, but um, your car is being towed out in mm-hmm. the parking lot. And I just wanted to let you know that. And he's like, what do you mean my car is being towed? And then they cut to the parking lot and they show this police officer writing a ticket and putting it on Jay's car. then they cut back to the studio and Jay's like, well, I don't understand this. I mean, that's my parking space. Why are they giving me a ticket? Why are they going to tell me? And the production assistant says, well, you see, apparently they're doing some construction today. They cut back to the parking lot, and there's a picture of a construction worker, you know, with his bare arms, you know, yeah, and yeah, a hammer yeah. or whatever. And then we we get the joke, and, and we were laughing so hard we didn't understand what the segue was to our friend Felipe in uh-huh. full headdress could they cut to him and he looks right at the camera and he gives the uh, the the sign right in the camera for cow the Clear. sign language for cow and we just exploded with delight
0: unambiguous is is he still around
1: yeah he is oh yeah i think and, they still he still perform
0: he's the original
1: he's the original
0: that's wow. right yeah that's fun random new york city <laughs> city encounter um at a restaurant, yeah, I probably would not have recognized... I mean, you didn't either recognize no. that name, but but everybody knows who that is. Yeah, they know the mm.
1: character, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: They know the character. Any other... Um, I mean, we'll, we'll get to your your uh, your television work, but any other cool uh, celebrity stories?
1: Uh, oh, gosh. Like, who,
0: like at the catering? You serve, you serve anyone?
1: Um, yeah, well, I ran into Jerry Seinfeld twice in New York. Mm-hmm. Once was mm-hmm. waiting in line... At a movie theater concession uh, stand to get popcorn, and I realized that mm-hmm. the two people there were two people in front of us. One of them was Jerry Seinfeld, and mm-hmm. I was a huge Seinfeld fan. And I was just I didn't I didn't go up to him or anything. I didn't want to bother him. Uh, but uh, uh, when he and his friend got their popcorn and went into the theater, I stepped up to the <laughs> to the um, food uh, booth. And this this woman <laughs> leaned toward me and she goes, that was Jerry Seinfeld. You know, I just love that show. I love that Elaine.
0: Yeah. Oh, um, see so, that.
1: So then as a cater waiter, I ran into him at a Kenny G benefit concert,
0: mm-hmm. which was
1: weird because it was a Kenny mm-hmm. G concert. They were raising money for something. I'm sorry and, you
0: had to listen to that.
1: You know, me too. <laughs> turns out Kenny G was a total jerk.
0: Yeah. everybody. Yeah.
1: But anyway, um, you know, he... Jerry Seinfeld was there and it was a it was a sit down like they had tables set out and, and we were serving dinner while there was music happening. And I was going to go and I was determined, even though he wasn't in my section, I was going to I was going to offer Jerry Seinfeld some coffee if it was the last thing I ever did. And I mm-hmm. had a pot of regular in one hand and a pot of decaf in the other. And I was coming up to him from behind and I was just about all the way to him. And I got a tap on the shoulder saying, from my my manager saying, "Clear the floor, clear the floor." Kenny G's coming out. Kenny G oh. coming out. So if it weren't for Kenny G, I would have, I would have served Jerry Seinfeld some coffee. I just know it.
0: I've heard he's not real big on the chatty, yeah. autograph picture. And I wasn't no, gonna, I'm trying to find a diplomatic way of saying that. Yeah, yeah I don't think no. he's big on that.
1: And I wasn't gonna do that. I just wanted to ask him mm-hmm. if he wanted some coffee. That would have been awesome.
0: Well. I believe this is the perfect segue because you said that Elaine, I love that Elaine. Yeah. Of course, Julie Louis-Dreyfus and you ended up on Veep and I've seen clips of you on Veep and it was so cool seeing that. How did that happen? <laughs> How, Cause you did some theater. How did the television? Yeah. Go? So,
1: well, it's all about my kids. It's, mm-hmm. It has everything to do with my kids. When we moved to Washington DC, uh, we had a two year old and a four month old.
0: Why did you move to D.C. the begin with?
1: I took a job uh, at the University of Maryland teaching mm, all right. in their theater program. And my wife, Anne, was a uh, marketing executive for Frito-Lay at the time. And so when we moved here, she continued to work for them remotely and I went in, to teach. But part of the teaching job when you're a tenure track faculty member is you're expected to um, maintain an active a professional profile, in other words, mm-hmm. you have to keep acting. You have to, and you and you have to do impressive acting jobs, or they'll fire you. I mean, if you don't get tenure, it's up or out. So you're you're doing everything you can to get good gigs and get you know better and better credits, so that you can keep your teaching job. It's kind of a funny backwards uh, way of right. living, but that's that's the way it is. And so I started working at the Shakespeare Theatre Company as soon as we got here and that would keep me out of the house uh afternoons and evenings till late at night for three to six months at a time leaving Mm. Anne home alone with two very small children and a very big career to manage at the same time working from home and it was really unmanageable um so uh i kept it up uh, for about uh three years continuing to work theater gigs and then i I got an agent here in in town and I said to them, listen, I want to knock off this theater thing and try to do some TV or film work. Because when you get uh, hired as an actor for TV or film, Mm -hmm. it's usually going to be for one or two days you're in, you're out, and then you've got a nice credit and you can add that to your Mm -hmm. resume as a professor. Um, and so the first job I got was, um, on an episode of an AMC drama called *Turn*, Washington spies, and uh, the way these things tend to go, they never—these auditions that you do—they never tend to go the way you think they will or the way you would expect them to lead to work. So, I actually got the job on *Turn* without auditioning. Hmm. Or, or I, I, I'd, I'd put a little audition on video and then I was supposed to come back and meet the it's, director. It,
0: it, it's your handsomeness. I, I people, <laughs> no. you know, I, I have, well, I can see Ashley. You should look him up. He's a, he's a good looking man.
1: No, no. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I was supposed to meet, I was supposed to meet the director and then I got this call saying the director's sick. He can't meet with you. Um, sorry. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I didn't get the job then. Cause they were going to be shooting the next week. Mm-hmm. And then I got a call at the very last minute saying, well, uh, you, you got the job. If you, <laughs> I was like, what? I didn't even meet the director yet. Um, and and, yeah, that and they're like...
0: shooting in D in DC, right? Cause you're not, or...
1: well, they were shooting in the Richmond, Virginia
0: area. Okay. So not, you didn't have to fly to LA. No, no, no. Right.
1: And, um, so I went down the next week and, and shot for, I think one day and it was mm-hmm. for the very first episode of the show And it was a very small part, just four or five lines. Mm -hmm. Um, And that ended up leading to a four-year job where I kept Mm -hmm. coming back as the same, you know, third banana character. But I would have some lines every time I came on and I had a little through line. And the funny thing was is that I didn't know anything about the character because he, he wasn't important enough for anybody to tell me anything about him. So as I went along, <laughs> I, I would find out little details about my character's life.
0: You don't you didn't know his backstory at all? No,
1: huh? I didn't know his backstory. At one point, and there was a scene where I delivered a letter to somebody and the letter had been written by my character. And so I looked at the letter, which had been created by the prop department, and I saw for the first time what my first name was. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, well, that's uh, funny!
1: And then later, my my last scene was in the very last episode of the show where I got killed. I got shot mm. off the back of a horse, and they had a stunt man do the falling off the horse thing. It was so cool to watch that. And then I got a dying line, like a like a last words line, where I, <laughs> I i referenced my wife. So that was the first time I found out that my character was married um anyway but that what, your, what do
0: you what do your kids think because they're older now do they watch that like oh you got killed then,
1: no they don't they, they saw don't it but they weren't really you know like hmm. basically so much television it's just like yeah whatever that's amazing but the cool thing was is that during those four years is when i did veep and a couple of other mm-hmm. things and then when i did that death scene that was when i decided this would be a perfect way to just stop acting altogether because by this time it had been 25 years and i just had kind of lost my passion for it and i thought well what a great way to go out with a little death scene so yeah yeah
0: before we leave the acting yeah and go into because you're a creative beast the (laughs) books you paint too right i do yeah um any any julia louis dreyfus fun things i have um, to ask if not okay
1: no, it's fun. oh well. I wanted to tell you that another weird. The way I got that job was also in a bizarre way. I went in to audition for the casting director in Baltimore because at that time the mm-hmm. show was being filmed in the Baltimore area, and I auditioned for a part. And then the next week, I got offered a job, but not for that character, <laughs> for a completely different mm-hmm. character. So anyway, these things just never go. You don't know how quicker. it's going to go. Right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I showed up for that. Job. It was a one-day shoot at a at a country club in the Towson area, I think, mm-hmm. Towson, Maryland, and um, and it was a huge uh, group of people. Lots of extras and everything. It was a lot of people, and uh, they just at some point they marched the they marched those of us who had lines into the the room where we were shooting it. And we walked up and shook hands with Julia Louis Dreyfus and Hugh Laurie, who were right. who was the yeah. co-star and uh, and he was in the scene as well. And it was just hi, I'm so and so, nice to meet you, good, let's start. And then we would just say the lines a couple of times, and then they start roll the cameras. Um, and then we would we took a, a meal break, a lunch break, as I recall. And Julia Louis Dreyfus was very nice, but she was also mm-hmm. the star and uh, the executive producer. So yeah. She had a lot going on. So mm-hmm. she was busy. And so yeah. I, I didn't, and, and I'm not the kind of person who goes up to famous people and chats them up anyway. I just don't have mm-hmm. the courage to, to do that. But Hugh Laurie and I happened to walk to lunch together. And it was a real kick for me because um, back when he was doing Blackadder back in the 90, early 90s, people used to tell me that they thought I looked like that guy on Blackadder. No one Uh, even knew his name in America yet because he hadn't done house yet. But um, so I didn't tell him that I wanted to. I wanted to say, you know, (laughs) people say, but whatever,
0: whatever you creep.
1: But we were walking to lunch and he was so funny because he introduced himself to me as if I wouldn't know who he was. And he he Uh mentioned something about how he's from England. And I was like, I just want to say, dude.
0: Yes, I totally and we know, know we got
1: I know it. who you are <laughs> and where you're from and may I just kneel at your feet. Um but he was a very pleasant fellow, so that was fun.
0: That yeah, we went we saw um we went in DC to Julia Louis dreyfus when she got the Mark Twain Award.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That was a
0: really cool event. I don't even know how he got tickets but my wife is so into her. Yeah. And I got, um, really fun, but she, she's just, re- she's funny. I, I mean, watched. obviously she's funny. She's on Seinfeld, but she's really, funny. she's
1: really funny. I watched that on, uh, on the telecast. It was so fun to watch that.
0: The, everything. Oh, she did the dance. She, they had the whole <laughs> audience do the Seinfeld dance. And, uh-huh. yeah. um, it was, uh, it was really cool. people love her and, and she sounds, she sounds like the real deal. So we yeah. had, we had to ask.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: Um, how many, wait, how many episodes were you on Veep? Just the one. Just the one. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Did they, did they film in like Harford County too? You know, the uh, house of cards? There was like a studio. Like in I, think Hartford, so. I
1: think so. I think though I never went there, but I think that's right.
0: Like North of Baltimore and for then, those who don't know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. And then, right. and then about, so I think, I don't know how many seasons of Veep there were, but right after the one I was in, they decided to move the whole production back to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I think because, Julie louis dreyfus wanted to be yeah. closer to her family i think so but it yeah. was a, it was a big loss for the local um community in terms of actors and uh production people because mm-hmm. shows like that were big employers for uh local, oh yeah lo- local I'm sure hundreds of people extras catering companies mm-hmm. oh gosh yes
0: all that kind of thing mm-hmm. um yeah, so, I mean, it makes sense, right? So the theater wasn't as family-friendly. This is more family-friendly. You got shot off a horse, decided that's the end of it. But <laughs> yeah. then, and I don't know if this was the next thing, you're like, let me just write some books. Yeah. I'll just take that up. I'll just write <laughs> three novels. Like, yeah. tell me about that.
1: Well, you you don't have to go anywhere uh, to right. write, and you don't have to have anyone's permission to write. One of the things that I right. was frustrated with acting was that you, in order to do it, you had to get permission from somebody or some committee of people.
0: There's there's gatekeepers.
1: Yeah. Now there's gatekeepers for getting published as a writer, but nobody can stop you from sitting down at the keyboard and, and engaging in the process. And it's the process Mm -hmm. that I love anyway. So, yeah. So I, I had, uh, right, right after the, um, 2016 presidential election, I got an Mm -hmm. idea um, for a story. And I thought mm-hmm. it would probably make a good screenplay for a movie. And because I had written a couple of plays in the past, I thought, well, would makes sense to write it as a script, not as any, you know, like not a mm-hmm. book or anything. And I guess it was right after his inauguration when I, I, I kept thinking about this and, um, and I was doing some research and, and I read that it's slightly easier or the, the odds are slightly more in your favor to sell a novel to a publisher than to sell a screenplay to a production company. It's just, wow. and I thought, well, okay, <laughs> I'd like to okay. improve the odds, so I'll try writing yeah. a novel version of this huh. story. And um, so I started that in March of 2017. And... Uh, And since then I've written, I've actually written four novels. That first one doesn't count because it, it, it wasn't, it was the, um, it was the, can I do this or can I not do this uh, Mm -hmm. project? And I did it. And that gave me a lot of confidence to try the next one and the next one and the next one.
0: Yeah. I mean, even, you know, as you know, we've talked about this, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan and even Dylan was saying, he's like, he was talking about himself he's like i do not have the aptitude to write i mean he wrote like one book a novel i mean that's a different animal he's like look i can sit down in a hotel write a song or something huh. but to have the aptitude to sit there and write you know hundreds of pages and you know for it mm-hmm. to make sense and that <laughs> yeah. that's how do you um i want to interested in what they're about but i'm also like what's your process at home with kids living yeah. family life like how do you how do you do that you know like the creative yeah. life with i'm always interested in people how do they integrate because i imagine there's some writers who just like have to be alone in a room for six months yeah how, do, that'd, how that'd does be they, awesome uh yeah right <laughs> for, yeah for me as well
1: well yeah. i have a friend who's a writer and an artist and when she became a mother obviously she didn't have the time anymore that she used to have to devote to her creative uh, uh pursuits and so she said this amazing thing which i still don't fully understand but i think it sounds amazing which is that she said she was going to try to make her life into art Mm. so parenting becoming art
0: it's beautiful yeah
1: it's beautiful right i don't
0: i love it i'm not sure what it means
1: (laughs) (laughs) but and i and i think about it a lot i'm like am i doing that no, I don't think I'm doing that. I'm trying This is your
0: palette. This is your palette. <laughs> well, Seth Godin is this sort of business um, blogger guru guy that I, that I follow and he yeah, he says the same thing, you know, you are a plumber, make it art. You know, yeah. you're an electrician. Right. Anything.
1: Yeah, we, we my acting guru in graduate school used to say um, that, you know, if you're if you're in New York City waiting tables, be an mm-hmm. actor waiting tables. You know, Mm -hmm. make it part of your process, whatever that means to you. And um, so as a parent, yeah, it's a it's definitely a balancing act. And I usually fail. I usually fall off that balance beam. Mm -hmm. Um, But I uh, I try. I try to keep, you know, (laughs) uh, keep myself um, fed and nourished with the creative process and keep my kids literally and nourished because I'm the, the cook yeah. and the grocery store shopper and the um you know that the, the laundry cool the laundry. I
0: am too not the laundry but the cook and the grocery store shopper and you know there's an art to that you know? some <laughs> days
1: there is and some yeah. days it's chaos no. but yeah
0: some days it's Instacart I don't have time for this
1: well I I found uh, that so I'm not a morning person. But mm-hmm. I found that I could get up at 5 a.m. and write before anyone else was awake. And it was yeah. exciting because I was excited about what I was working on. And I would—I knew that if I if I was feeling excited the night before as I was going to bed about getting up at 5 a.m., which, it, you know, before I started writing, if you had said, hey, what do you think about, you know, being in the military or being a medical professional who has to get up that early, I would have said, no, I could never hack that. But mm-hmm. um somehow be knowing that I get to get up and engage in the creative process um motivates me. So that's what works really well for me is how, getting how often are you work. doing
0: that every morning or
1: Yeah, every, when I'm writing a book it's every every wow. day, even on the weekends.
0: That's exhausting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's actually it, no, it's I'm it, sure it yeah. feeds you, it gives you energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And do you have a process? A specific process or? Um, I, that, think that so. I, I think
1: so. I think so. What's been working for me. Uh, so in, in the publishing world, they talk about authors who um, are um, outliners or pantsers. Mm-hmm. They call them pantsers, meaning you write by the seat of your pants. And I, I think there's actually I mean some people will say yeah i'm I'm an outliner I, I outline the whole thing uh, right. Jeffrey Deaver, a very famous thriller writer, he'll write um, outlines that are almost longer than the actual book he ends up writing based on that outline but a lot of, and a lot of people say, no, I don't do any outlining and I just I just go one page at a time and I found that most people are a, a hybrid, and so I'm a hybrid mm-hmm. and um, so what I do is I get a if I have an idea for a premise that I want to spend a year on, because with edit, you know, rewriting and stuff, it takes about a year to do a book for me. Um, uh, Then what I do is I decide on the structure. Uh, Is it going to be a three act story or a five act story? And once I know the structure, then I know where the moments of crisis need to be. And then I decide what those crises are. And then I start writing toward the first one. But as I Mm -hmm. go, all that changes because the story and the characters tend to lead me in directions I could have never uh, imagined ahead of time until I, I was engaging in the process. And so yeah,
0: it, it feels like a cliche question to ask, but I I'm always interested in cause everyone's brain works differently and they have a different way. And yeah. it's, it's, um, it's, it's interesting to me yeah. too. Um, so you sound like you have a, a you, as you said, really structured sort of rational kind of, yeah, kind but, of way but to the, do it. But
1: the, the, the fun it, of it yeah. is when all that changes as you're going mm-hmm. and you get surprised and that's, that's what keeps me motivated.
0: And you are still, um at least what are are all of them like the crime novel genre? Uh,
1: yeah, although um some are historical and some are
0: historical, yeah. Uh, uh
1: contemporary.
0: Is that what you like to read? Yeah. Or yeah. Just, okay.
1: Um you know, I I studied English in college and I have a great appreciation for literary fiction as defined mm-hmm. by fiction that's more attentive to language and the inner life of the characters. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, But I really love stories that seem to be going somewhere. And if mm-hmm. I'm reading a story where it doesn't seem to be, I don't think we're headed anywhere soon and it's just an exploration. I tend to have a hard time staying focused on that kind of stuff. So I like stories that have pace and that have surprises and twists.
0: And here's a question. Now, does this, color the way you parent like for example are you wanting them to be avid readers and writers or or focus on that more like how does it inform the way you rate because your yours are around about the i guess exactly the same age what like 10 and 12 mm-hmm yep like are you are you saying are you emphasizing let's say um that over let's say math or something
1: no, I'm no. not i'm Hopefully, and I think this is actually happening in our family, I'm kind of leading by example.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: uh, and the kids will go in and out of phases of being interested in reading. Uh, for a long time, my my daughter was reading, you know, a book a week, two books a week. Wow. And now she's really into art. So that's kind of fallen to the wayside for her, but I think just temporarily probably. But my Mm -hmm. 10 year old is, uh, is really into reading right now. He just read Mm -hmm. the entire Percy Jackson series of books in Mm -hmm. the span of less than a month. He's, he's just devouring it. And so he and I now have, and this was all his idea. I don't uh, ask him to do this at all. When I'm sitting down in the evening reading, he'll come and. Bring a book and sit with me, and we kind of cuddle on the couch together, reading our books, and it's a really wonderful. It's it's a kind of a feels like a bonding experience, even though we're not interacting so much in terms of dialogue. That's
0: nice. But we're just yeah. kind
1: of hanging, and it's very peaceful. And it's really nice.
0: Yeah, my kids just read The Fountainhead, and then all of David Foster Wallace's work. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just no, oh my I'm just god! Kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know, I, I just, it was just thinking about it. A friend of mine was listening to the fountainhead on audio and I was like, well, how long is that? He's like 67 hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane, man. Wow. Um, so what, uh, what's, what's, what else is going, what else? I mean, you are working on publishing them. Yeah. And yeah. You won an award. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Um, uh, so my most recent book, uh, is called the looking glass spy and it's, um, takes place in the 17th century. And that's it's based on the real uh, historical industrial espionage that went on between Louis XIV and the Republic of Venice. Uh, the Venice held a, a closely guarded monopoly on the manufacturing and exporting of glass mirrors for hundreds of years. And Louis wanted to break that monopoly, start his own mirror industry, so that he could make his great hall of mirrors at Versailles, which he did. But it involved <laughs> a lot of industrial espionage and assassinations, and that was all true stuff. And so I wrote a novel yeah. uh, so about quite
0: that. a bit of research. Uh, yeah. it sounds like yeah, yeah a lot of fun research. And that book, hanging was, out at the library.
1: Yeah. yeah, and that book was shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association Debut Dagger Award, which is a an award that's designated for um, unagented, unpublished uh, um, books. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so that was a real uh, thrill. That's kind of like the Academy Awards of Crime Fiction. So to be shortlisted, it's like being nominated for an Oscar. A, so it was a real great. honor to, to get that.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And, and um, I, I guess it's not the same, but I know the publishers or the gatekeepers is their... Could you? Are you? Is it want to self-publish or no? it's not?
1: I've often thought about it, and mm-hmm. I've always come to the same conclusion that that just wouldn't mm-hmm. be for me because not for you. Because when you self-publish a book, you mm-hmm. have to become the marketer, the publicity right. person, the art director, and it's very time-consuming. And I'd rather focus my time, mm-hmm. what little I have of it, uh, on the writing. So mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm pursuing a traditional publishing route.
0: Yeah. And, um, and the painting as well is, a, is, a, is another thing?
1: Well, I, I stopped painting when I started writing because I found <laughs> that the, they were the exact same thing in terms of what my, huh. brain, what it, what my brain got out of it. And uh, painting is very time-consuming, as you can imagine. And so I've set that aside for about... I haven't painted it in about four years.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not any of those things. This is my creative creative outlet. I love. I love the conversation. I love the ideas. And um, yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. So, uh, any words of wisdom for anyone listening? Let's say who wants to start writing, maybe just as a hobby, or maybe wants to write a novel. Um, what, <laughs> like, and has a really full life. Anything uh, comes up for you?
1: Mm. I don't believe in giving advice uh, because Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm expert enough to be giving advice. Um, I'll just say that for me as a stay at home dad, Mm -hmm. uh, writing has been a very rewarding creative outlet. Um, And I I can't Mm -hmm. imagine life without it, let alone parenting without that in my life right now. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm, and I'm in a very, fortunate place and that my wife has a fantastic career in the hospitality industry. And, um, hmm. so, you know, I'm, I'm holding down the fort while she's, you know, making the fort possible, but, um, yeah. I'm very lucky for that. And I, and it's still, yeah, I'm, a, I'm able to uh, carve out the time I need to, to get the writing in.
0: Are you doing it every day? Yes. Still? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm actually wow. taking my first break in four years right now, but yes. I'm I'm doing research for the next one while I'm on my little break. Wow.
0: Well, I think that sounds like a perfect, uh, perfect ending point. Do you, um, what about any historical fiction books other than yours that do you love? Any, any just cool book recommendations that you, that you enjoy?
1: <clears throat> so many. Um, let's see. Uh, I love the historical thrillers by Robert Harris. if you can get your hands on a book by Robert Harris, he wrote um, his first big bestseller was called Fatherland, which mm-hmm. imagined um, it takes place in the sixties and it imagines what if the Nazis had won the war um, he's, his books like um, Conclave and the Ghostwriter and um Oh, the second sleep. I, I just love his historical thrillers. So, highly yeah. recommend.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not like a fiction guy. I'm always, you know, listening to stuff like this, <laughs> interviews, <laughs> podcasts, stuff. But, but it's it's always interesting to get uh, to get recommendations. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
1: It's been a pleasure, David. It's good to see you. I I
0: love hearing your your stories and keep it up. And I can't wait to see it in store one day.
1: Thank you. I'll let you know.
0: (laughs) I can't wait to serve you coffee one day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're sweet.
0: All right, buddy. Take care. See you. And there you have it. That was my conversation with Ashley Harrison Smith, chock full of cool, fun, tidbits live in the new york city life the writer's life the actor's life and um really interesting really talented person thank you all so much for listening please consider writing a five-star review liking sharing it whatever you got to do thanks so much we'll see you next time take care be well